Amen. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to North Point. Welcome to our online campus. We're just uh, so glad to be in your homes today, excited to get the opportunity to worship with you. My name is Shane Ham, one of the pastors here at North Point Church. And uh, as you probably know, if you've been tuning in, we just finished a three-week series uh, that we've been talking about change and how do you navigate change with vision. That's really the question that uh, we've spent a few weeks talking about, and that's pretty important because if you've been alive for any length of time, you know that things do change. It's inevitable. The question is, how are you going to live through it? How are you going to respond to the change that happens? And so Pastor Steve and I have been talking with you every week about the question, are you going to live by design or are you going to live by default? Are you going to drift or are you going to be intentional? Now, I think that God wants you and me to live intentionally. In fact, let me give you an example from Ephesians 5. If you just take a look at this, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes and says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Now, the word fool here, it's an interesting word, it's the word aphron, and it has to do with the man or the woman who doesn't employ understanding in the practical matters of their life. In other words, they're the kind of person that just sort of floats. They're sort of taken by whatever ideas or, or issues happen to be carrying them away at the moment. And they're sort of just carried away by things. Paul's saying here, don't do that. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Be carried away by things. But live like those who are wise. Now notice, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the next five weeks, Pastor Steve and I, and at the very end, actually, uh, our newest pastor, Pastor Andrew, we want to be talking to you about how to be intentional. We want to talk to you about how to live purposefully. How do you and I live a purpose-driven life? Now, this is a powerful thing because if you study the scriptures, and especially if you study the New Te Testament, study the way the earliest followers of Jesus lived, study what they did, study what happened when they knew that God was moving among them, what you see are five basic purposes that we like to talk about around here. In fact, you can see those purposes coming up on the screen right now. And these purposes represent what we call the operating system of the church. The church can have a million different programs, but it's really these purposes that we live for because it's the balance of these purposes that make us healthy. And if we're healthy, we grow. Now, this is true of people. This is also true of the church. Anything that's healthy grows. You know that. We talked about that last week. But you can see there's the purpose of worship and the purpose of fellowship the purpose of discipleship and ministry and evangelism. 
Now guys, I'm saying to you today, these are the intentional purposes that God has called us to live for. And so while we've been talking about navigating change with purpose, I'm saying to you today, regardless of all the changes that might happen around here at North Point, this is something that will never change. In fact, the purposes are really 2,000 years old. They have consistently been the purposes of the church. And so don't act thoughtlessly, God's word says, but you and I need to understand what the Lord wants us to do. So here's what we're gonna do. Today I wanna talk to you specifically about the purpose of worship. Because again, I want for you to see that Paul makes an interesting comparison. Notice, he says, don't be drunk with wine. There's a good word for some of us. He says, don't be drunk with wine, that'll ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, or in other words, be given over to God. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music in your heart, to who? To God. Giving thanks for everything, to who? To God. Now, what Paul is saying here is absolutely critical that one of the things that is true about you and it's true about me is that in the failure to recognize God as God, the Bible says that we will automatically start worshiping something else. And that's true because as human persons, we were made to worship something. So today I wanna just answer three fundamental questions and I'm gonna hit these as fast as I can. I want to first answer the question as we go on together is what does worship actually look like? What does it mean to worship? Secondly, I want to answer the question, what are the convictions that should inform our worship? Now that's an important question and what I'm really hoping to do as we talk about that question is I'm hoping even to answer some of the reasons why, you, you notice North Point Church hasn't um, defied the governor's order to uh, to, to not have worship indoors. We've decided we're not gonna defy that in spite of the fact that there are churches in California that have said, no, we're gonna defy that order and they've given reasons. I'm hoping that some of what we talk about today will inform you as to why we're choosing not to do that. And most importantly, what are the biblical principles that guide us in these kinds of decisions, both personally and together as a church? Third, I'm gonna close with this. How do we guard the integrity of our worship? So let's start with the convictions, though, about worship here. Let's jump right in. Number one, if you'd write this down, here's the first conviction about worship. Number one, what you worship is what you're going to orbit your life around. Just write that down if you're taking notes at home. What you worship is what you orbit your life around. Now, I could say this another way. I could say what you worship is what you center your life on. In other words, I'm saying... I want you to think about the thing that you think about all the time. Think about your life. What do you put your energy into? What really gets most of your affection? Where do you spend your time? What do you spend your money on? What gets your emotion and energy? Now you think about that thing and that's what you worship. In fact, there's a great example in Luke's gospel that Jesus shows us and you'll just see it here. A man comes, comes running up to Jesus and falls at Jesus' feet. And he asks Jesus, good master, what must I do to be sure of eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. 
Master replied, I've kept, I have kept carefully all these things since I was young. Now, let me hold there for just a minute. What's, what's this man saying? Let's be clear. The man is saying, Jesus, I have been great at religion. He's saying, Jesus, I've been great at keeping the law. I mean, the temple, I'm good. The law, I'm good. The commandments, I'm good. But notice, Jesus looked at him steadily, it says, and with his heart warmed towards him, he said, there is one thing that you still need. Go and sell everything you have and give your money away to the poor, and then you will have riches in heaven. Then you can come back and follow me. Now, what is Jesus doing there? Jesus is separating the religious from the Christ follower. And what Jesus has just done is he's pinpointed the one thing that this man's life centers on. It's really the one thing that he worships. For all of his religiousness, what had his affection really was his wealth. And it says, at these words, his face fell and he went away. He was in deep distress for he was very rich. Now friends, I want for you to get this because what is worship? If I could just put it another way, and you're going to see this in your notes, what is worship? Worship is when something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and it commands your emotions. Let me just give you an example of this. You got a football fan, and I know some of you already, you're not going to like this example, but let's, let's just go with it for a second. You got a football fan, and all week this football fan, he studies the object of his adoration, he reads about it. He studies statistics about it. He thinks about the game that's coming on the weekend. He talks about it with his friends. And then he spends a ton of time and effort to get in the presence of his adoration. He's got the snacks. He's dressed up for it. And then when you put the object of his adoration in front of that guy, boy, his whole posture changes, doesn't it? It affects his entire disposition. He praises them. He shouts his face is glowing. It's like, wow, he's happy. He hasn't been happy all week. But in this moment, he's happy. Now, friends, what do you call that? That's an example of worship. In fact, you want to see the emotion. It just carries out in people's lives. I just captured this picture that you'll see right here. I mean, just look at these people. I can tell you these folks are far more excited right now probably than they get when they're at church. Why? Well, it's adoration. And I'm not saying the game isn't a fun thing to watch. But God says, be careful about what you're really centering your life on. Let me give you another example. A guy says to a girl, baby, I can't make it without you. I'm telling you, honey, you're the reason I live. You're the reason I die. I mean, you're my reason for laughing. You're my reason for crying. Now, what is that? That's worship. You've got to think about your life and you've got to start thinking, okay, what's really got my life? What's really got my attention, really? Now, lots of people that are religious people, they like to make God a part of their life, but they don't like to necessarily make God the center of their life. They want enough of God to bless them, but they don't want so much of God that he actually interferes. God becomes sort of like a piece of the pie. You've got several pieces of the pie of your life. You think, I've got a business life. I've got a sports life. I've got a professional life. I've got a sex life. I've got a social life. You say, I got my church life. 
And then you give God a little slice of your life over here and you say, well, this is God in my life. And I'm saying to you, God doesn't want to be a slice of your life. God wants to be the center of your life. In fact, God says, I want to affect the whole recipe of the pie. God says, I need to affect every other avenue of your life, that your life needs to orbit around Jesus. That is so critical. In fact, if I could just ask you to think about it this way as you're thinking on this topic, take a look at this picture here. What you've got here is a solar system, and you think about a solar system. Now, the reason it's a system is you keep looking at it is because of all the other planets, as it were. They sort of go around the center, don't they? That's what makes it a system, is that these planets orbit around a sun. In fact, this is an interesting example because you, I don't know if you know, but Jesus is actually likened to the sun in the Bible. God is likened to the sun. But notice in this picture, all of the rest of them, they just sort of rotate around that center but there's only one that can be on the inside. That's why it's a system. Now, I just ask you, what would happen if all of a sudden every one of those planets decided, no, 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 I want to be the center? And they start using all of their gravitational pull to start pulling everything in on them. Well, now you don't have a solar system. What you have now is a cataclysm. What you have now is worlds colliding. Because for the system to work, there can only be one center. And God says, that's got to be me. You need to orbit everything around me. That's the first conviction. Here's the second conviction, if you just go ahead and write this down. Is that worship is always for God's pleasure. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. But I am going to say it is easy to get confused about this issue today. Because there is, I said we're going to talk about this, there is a considerable dialogue going on right now about the Christian's right to worship and what that actually means. In fact, there's a phrase that I keep hearing over and over and over again. It's an interesting phrase. In fact, you'll see it all over social media. I just, I just did a Google search on social media, and you just see these over and over again. And uh, it's, it, it sounds right that we should get to worship as we please as Americans. And you sort of read something like that, or you hear your friends talking about that, and you go, well, that's right, we're Americans, we should get to do that. The problem with this is three little words. In fact, let me zoom in on those three little words. It's as we please. Now why, why is that a problem? Because for the Christian, the phrase isn't as we please. For the Christian, the phrase goes something more like this. We worship as God pleases. That's how it should work in our life. Now, the reason I say this is because you just notice how the Bible refers to Christians in the New Testament. For example, Paul writes to the Philippians, notice, and he says, but we are actually citizens of heaven, and we are eagerly waiting for our Savior to come from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I just say to you right now, we don't worship first as Americans, we worship firsts as citizens of heaven, as Christians. We are Christians. And so we look and say, God, what kind of worship pleases you? Because our worship is all about you. It's around you that we orbit. My goodness, Jesus looked at his followers and he says, they don't belong to this world any more than I belong to this world. Jesus says that about you. 
And he says that about me. So the only question that should be going on in your life, the only question that should be going on at North Point Church, in the church at large, is this question. What kind of worship actually pleases God? Friends, I'm saying to you, that is the guiding principle that motivates us around here at North Point. And we've heard what other churches have said, and they base their opinions on what it means to be an American. But, but you understand what the bigger question is. What kind of worship pleases God? How should the Christian live? You know, it was a question that uh, the prophet Micah act, asked in the Old Testament. In fact, I've just put this scripture in your notes for you to see it. If you just take a look at this. The prophet asks, what can I bring with me when I come before the Lord, when I bow before God on high, speaking of worship? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand male sheep? Will he be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, he's talking about the way God's people worshiped, what they did in the temple in the place of worship. So he's asking these questions. How should I worship? Should I give everything I have? Should I even give my first child for the evil that I've done? Should I give my very own child for my sin? Look at verse eight. The prophet says, the Lord has told you, human, what is good. He has told you what the Lord wants from you, to do what is right to other people, to love being kind to others and to live humbly, obeying your God. Now friends, he says, that's what your worship is. God says, that's your song. God says, that's your assembly. It's all about how you treat people. What's the kind of worship that pleases God? It's the kind of worship that always puts the needs of others first. And you'll notice around here at North Point, this is a repeated thing that we keep going back to in the scripture. That when you worship at the disregard of people, the people who suffer, people who are sick, people who are poor, God actually says, that's a worship that I hate. What good are your songs? There's all this controversy, by the way, in the church weeks ago about singing. But, you know, the prophet Amos says, you know, take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Now, so you don't miss it, he's talking about how you and I respond to people and care about people. Which leads really to the third conviction that we just wanna make sure is right as we talk about our purpose of worship. Write this down, here's the third conviction of worship. Is that worship is always more, and the worship that pleases God is always more than a song. It's always more than a meeting. And it's always more than a place. Now, guys, we have got to get this right as Christians, as Christ followers. It's obvious that the early church, for example, didn't have worship centers. The earliest Christians didn't have large buildings. In fact, what makes the Christian faith so distinctive is that our worship isn't tied to a place. Our worship is tied to a person. Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, let me be clear. We love having a place. We have spent money on building a place. We have given to God to have a place. Why? Because a place is useful for reaching more people with the gospel. 
Because a place is helpful in training to make disciples, those who would follow Jesus and go into the world. My goodness, friend, I'm speaking to you from that place today, and it's in this place that we could put together a quality worship service that you could be involved in right now. We can't wait to be in this place more together and use it indoors, but don't get confused. It's not about the place, it's about the person. Don't you see all the conversation today and all of our energy is going into arguments about the place, but it's never been about the place, it's only ever about the person. Why argue about a place when you can proclaim a person? There are people hurting right now. There are people that are worried right now and difficult. And instead of arguing over the place, we could be touching them with the person. I'll never forget the time that a woman comes to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, notice the scripture. My ancestors worshiped in this particular place. But you Jews say, this is the only place to worship. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, believe me, the time is coming, speaking to today, the New Testament, the time is coming when you won't worship the Father either in this place or in this place because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. My wife reminded me this week that Paul and Silas worshiped from prison. In fact, you can see that scripture in your notes. I'm not gonna read it with you right now, but I encourage you to study that story. How is North Point worshiping right now? Well, take a look at this. This was a college meeting, uh, this picture here that we just had uh, last week, and, and uh, this is pretty much how we're doing public worship services right now, in addition to our weekend offering that you're receiving right now. In fact, I just love these pictures. Take a look at this one. In fact, we've got another one of these that we're doing next Friday night that we want to invite you to. It's, it's what we call our summer nights. It's worship on the lawn. We're inviting our whole church to come and spread out and be a part of worship together. But you understand, it's not about the place. It's about, it's about yielding our life to the person. And we're going to keep doing that. In fact, uh, you, you've probably already heard about the announcements and seen the emails about various events coming, whether it's small groups or women's ministry, and it's all going to be done in this way. Somebody says, well, pastor, isn't assembling together indoors and worshiping? You say, doesn't that please God? And I'd say, sure it does. That's why we hope to do that again, and we plan to do that again, hopefully sooner rather than later. But but we'll never do it at the expense of people. And I know you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, pastor, that's just your opinion. And I just say to you, well, don't take my word for it. When God's people ask the question, let's go to it again. What can I bring with me when I come before the Lord, when I bow before the Lord on high? Will he be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? No, the Lord has told you, human, what's good, what he wants from you, to do what is right to others. To love being kind to others. I gotta tell you, I'm excited about the way we're doing it today because I know what's motivating it. It's not selfishness. It's not some right-centered thing that says everything needs to orbit around me. It's that I get to love being kind to other people. And I pray you do too. I know some of you are saying, yeah, but pastor, don't I have rights? I'll say this. You have the right to serve God at his pleasure. 
you have the right to serve God for his glory. You know, we were talking about something similar to this a few weeks ago, and somebody sent me a text message right after, and they said, yeah, well then, Pastor, where do we draw the line? When, do, when should we really start worrying about our rights? Well, here's the answer. When somebody tells you that you can't worship the person, when somebody says you can't worship Jesus Christ, but boy, they could worship anything else, well, then you should draw a line. But I don't believe that that's what's being said here. That's not what's happening. We have been given a tremendous opportunity as Christians to join with the world and set the highest example. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus said, if any man wishes to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his own cross and follow me. Jesus climbed up on his cross for the needs of others. You know, people have been saying, yeah, but does the governor have the right to take it away? Well, I got to tell you, some people think, well, the Romans took Jesus's rights away and put him up on that cross, or the Jewish priests did that. I'm going to tell you, nobody took Jesus's life. Jesus laid it down freely. Nobody's taken our rights. We lay them down freely for the sake of others. That's our song. That's our assembly. Now, that leads to the fourth conviction, and I want for you to write this down. This is a powerful one. That Jesus is both the agent and the object of our worship. Now, let me just explain that. Let me just start with the agent. What do I mean? It means that without his agency, without Jesus' involvement in our worship, without his mediation in our worship, I'm going to tell you, I couldn't worship anyway. I'm not good enough. Never have been. In fact, there's an interesting psalm, Psalm 24, that sets an example for us. Notice what it asks. It says, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and who never tell lies. Such people may worship you, may seek you, in your presence. Now, I'll just tell you, I read that and I realize right away, that's not me. And that's not you. None of us are that good. I have lied. I have cheated. My entire life, I have morally compromised myself that I could never stand in the presence of God and worship him. Truth is, I'll just be the one to say here, I am wrecked without Jesus. There is nothing good in me. But notice, we started today in Ephesians. We read from Ephesians last week. Let's go back to it again. Look what Ephesians says in chapter three. It says, but because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. In other words, it's nothing we can do there's no good in us. It's only what he's done. In fact, friend, I want for you to understand this, and maybe you've never heard it like this before, but boy, I hope God illuminates it to you today, that this, this difference between do and done, that really is the, the essence of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. In fact, there, there's a little uh, slide that I just want you to see here. Is that religion says it's all about do. Every religion of the world says that. But the gospel says, no, it's what's been done. Jesus says it's done. In fact, if I could just say it this way, 
if you just look at this next slide, that the gospel isn't what, what Jesus would do and now I go do that. No, the gospel is what Jesus has done and now I believe that. Because see, Titus chapter three says, it's he that saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. See, that's what I mean by he's the agent of our worship. But he's not just the agent, he's also the object of our worship. What do I mean? Well, I've already said, of course, it's not about the place, it's about the person, and that's true. But this is critical that we get this. When we worship Jesus, we don't worship Jesus for what we think he can do for us or what we think it will get us. No, we worship Jesus for Jesus. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Philippians as an example, and he says this. He says, you know, I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ, and they're headed for their destruction. Why? Because their God is their appetite. And they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Now, there are many Christians who worship in the name of Jesus, but they're just really worshiping themselves. How do you know them? Well, you know them, you know all about them, because... They're only concerned about satisfying their own needs. They're only concerned about satisfying their own preferences and their own wants and their own appetites. See, God is the means to the end, but God's not the end. It's this life enhancement gospel where you sort of use Jesus to, to get what you want. God says, that's not the gospel. I'm gonna tell you, that's not biblical Christianity. Jesus Christ is not the means to an end. He's not the means to a better life. Jesus is the end. What do we get by worshiping Jesus? We get Jesus. We get him. He's the treasure. He's the aim. He's the goal. So I'm going to close with this. And it really are, is closing points before we're done. How do you and I guard the integrity of our worship? And how do we worship rightly? Write these things down very quickly. First, here's what you do. You daily offer yourself to the Lord. You say, God, it's not about me, it's about you, and I offer my life to you. You take your everyday, your ordinary life, you take your sleeping, you take your eating, you take your going to work, whatever you do in life. And, and you know, Romans 12.1 puts it this way. It says, so brothers and sisters, since God has shown us great mercy, I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Your offering must be only for God and what is pleasing to him, for his pleasure, which is the spiritual way for you to worship. So you say, God, whatever you want is what I give. However you've told me in your word to live is how I'm choosing to live because that's my offering. By the way, if you were to ask me to define worship, I'd say it in a word, it's offering. And every day I offer my life to God. God, take it, 
do what you want. I'll never forget when I was 18 years old, I preached my first sermon in a place called Wellingboro, England. And I couldn't believe it because I got done preaching the sermon and uh, hundreds of teenagers, they come flooding to an altar to pray to receive Christ or talk to God about what's been going on in their life. And I'll never forget that God would actually use me to provoke people to come forward and give their lives to him. I'll never forget going up to an upper room uh, in, this, in this old church and I got by myself right after that was over and I said, Lord, I just want to be like a ping pong ball. And I had this picture in my mind. God, you just, you just, just hit me anywhere you want me to go. Whatever you want from my life, I dedicate to your service. Why? Because it's an offering. What is that? That's worship. And friends, God's using this life to teach you how to do that. Why? Because God is preparing you for an eternity of worship. One day, your heart's going to stop. One day, your body's going to die, but that's not going to be the end of you. You're going to go on into eternity, and God is teaching you in this life how to prepare for that life, an eternity of offering. You may be watching this today, and you may be saying, you know, Pastor, I know that I'm not walking right with God. And I'm saying to you, you've got to get back with God today. Do it today. Ask somebody for prayer online. Say, I need to pray with somebody today because God's calling you to get right with him. You know, probably the most famous atheist of the 20th century was a man by the name of Bertrand Russell. You can see his picture coming up here. He was an atheist, but there is one thing I totally agree with him on. He said this. He said, unless you assume God, the question of purpose of life is meaningless. He's really right about that. That is really true. What is he saying? He's saying if there's no God, if your birth was an accident, if there's no eternal soul, if there's no right and wrong, if there's no heaven or hell, there's no afterlife, then you've got to admit it's pretty bleak. And you're watching this right now, and if you're watching this and you're an atheist and you say, you know, I don't believe in God, well, then at the very least, you've got to be intellectually honest enough to admit the conclusion of where that belief is going to lead you. Because if there is no God, then nothing matters. But if there is a God, then your life has been planned for God's pleasure, and you need to turn to him today. You need to come to him. And then what happens? And then, write this down, you let God begin to change the way you think about life and the way it's to be lived. And you ask God to do it. You say, God, begin to change my mind. By the way, do you know what repentance is? Repentance in the Greek actually means to change your mind. Change the way you think. You say like the psalmist did, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And friend, I'm saying to you, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Today, you could be carrying around shame. Here's what you do. You say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I know it. God knows who you are. God loves you all the same. God says, I want you to come to me. You say, God, I'm a sinner, and for that reason, I need you. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. 
Titus 3, again, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. But then notice how it goes on. Through the washing of regeneration, meaning God begins to change you from the inside out, he regenerates you and the renewal by the Holy Spirit the Bible says that the moment you pray to say, Jesus, I want to entrust my life over to you, his Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And all of a sudden, your life begins to change in worship to him. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. And then what do you do? And I'll close with this point. We'll pray. You just begin to live accordingly. You'll begin to live differently. It's what Jesus called born again. Now friends, this is the purpose of worship. This is the purpose of offering. We're excited that we're going to keep talking to you about the other four purposes in coming weeks. I encourage you to share this message. Share this message with your friends, those that know Christ, so that they understand the convictions that we understand about worship. But, but I also encourage you to send it, share it with those that don't know Christ and say, hey, listen to this. It may just change you. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would meet us right where we are right now and that you would help us to know you. There, there is nothing good in us. We can't come before you without your agency, your mediation. You're the agent that brings us to God because of what you did on the cross. Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you, not just to believe intellectually, but to yield our lives and trusting ourselves to your care. God, we need to do that. I pray for anybody listening right now that you would help them to do that. Bless them, God. Father, we thank you for your good work. Guide us as we offer ourselves for your good pleasure in a way that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.